And now, deep thoughts. Hey, you are listening to Deep Thoughts, where each and every episode explores one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Shams. You know, at some point in our lives, we all confront Christianity with our biggest faith questions. And my sincere hope and prayer is that if it hasn't already, Christianity itself will confront you with what I believe to be the best answers to life's hardest questions. My guest, Rebecca McLaughlin, has rapidly become one of the leading Christian apologists in the world, meaning that she has a wonderful way of making an intelligent, coherent, compelling, beautiful case for the faith. And I think that's going to become pretty self-evident here in the next few minutes. She holds a PhD from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill College in London. Her book, Confronting Christianity, was the Christianity Today Book of the Year. She'll follow that up with 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity, which releases March 16th of this year, and the Secular Creed, engaging five contemporary claims, which releases later this spring. I'm serving up a few hard-hitting questions for Rebecca in an episode as much about Harry Potter as it is about difficult faith questions. And now, here's my deep conversation with Rebecca McLaughlin. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, great to, to virtually be here. Yeah. <laughs> um, if it's all right with you, I'd like to start this interview with a pretty uh, heavy hitting question. Is that all right? That's absolutely fine. Okay. I'm all about the heavy hitting one. All right, here we go. Why do you love Harry Potter so much? Do you know, when I first met my now husband, he was reading Harry Potter and I hadn't yet started reading Harry Potter and truth be told, I judged him. I was like, why are you reading a kid's book? It's an embarrassment. Um, And then my, my sister and my dad were both reading Harry Potter and they really liked it. So I started reading it and kind of got bored in the first book. It was, it felt like a children's book. Mm Mm-hmm. But I was told, I was firmly instructed by people in my family who I respect that I needed to persist. And as I read on, I I grew to love it. I I think J.K. Rowling is an incredible storyteller. She's not, this is an odd distinction to make, but because my background's in English literature, I'll make it anyway. She's not actually a brilliant writer in the sense of like sentence, but it's not that every sentence is beautiful. I, I sometimes, especially with her early books, I'd kind of sit there wishing I had a pen to cross things out and say, oh, don't repeat that. Oh, no, yeah. It's not that every every line is beautiful, but the, the story is so compelling. Yeah, the world she imagines. And I, I think, it, yeah, and, and the, the relationships and um, the the dynamics and the, the ways that she draws us in and twists us around mm. are so fantastic. And they're, they're enjoyable to read but I also find them extremely useful to mine as someone who is often trying to explain complex or counterintuitive con- um, concepts to, to people. There are so many moments in Harry Potter that are helpful. I, I literally, I just before talking to you now, I was, I was giving a talk for um, folks at Cambridge University where I came from once upon a time. 
and I used uh, Dobby's death as an illustration of something I was trying to say there. So I, I <laughs> almost can't write without using Harry Potter these days. Yeah, and you make a reference in your book, and you also, uh, um, to, to kind of a gospel storyline in it, but you also mentioned J.K. Rowling personally, like you, you mentioned her along the lines of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and that she has some sort of Christian faith belief or something. That, that was news to me, because um, I, I was under the impression Christians weren't allowed to read Harry Potter because it's about which, which Craft and wizardry. So, <laughs> can, can <laughs> yeah, you make that? Can you can you make those gospel connections that you you make in the book and 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 even J.K. herself? Yes, uh, f- for starters, she's definitely not in the C.S. Lewis Tolkien category of very serious, well thought through Christian who is writing with that as a driving force. Right. Just to be clear, that's not that's not what I'm trying to claim. She did say in an interview that the reason she didn't say anything about her interest in Christianity and her, I, I think she talks about having a kind of fragile Christian faith or like an on and on. Some days she feels that she believes and other days she, she doesn't, but she mm. sort of it definitely doesn't um, see herself as a, as a non-believer um, or, or kind of anti-Christian in her thinking. Um, the reason she didn't disclose that until all the books were out is because she'd drawn heavily on, on Christian themes for the denouement of, of Harry Potter. Um and I, I think there's a temptation that people have to think, well, if something's a really good story that truly engages people's imaginations and hearts, then you know, must, it can't really be a Christian. Uh, it, it sort of must be plucked out of a, a, a Christian context. And one of the best counter examples of that, in my mind, is actually Jane Austen, who's one of the greatest Christian intellectuals of all time and wrote some of the best stories of all time. I'm starting mm-hmm. to read to my oldest daughter. Hmm. Um, yeah, and when it comes to the... The, the folks say, I think this may be a uniquely American phenomenon. I at least haven't heard it in other places, thinking that their children shouldn't read Harry Potter because it talks about witches and, and wizards. Um, firstly, I hope they're, not, they're also not letting their kids read Lord C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of magic there. Exactly. Um, and not Lord of the Rings either. The, the question um, the question is like not whether any book has depictions of good and evil in it. But how, how are those two concepts brought to us? Uh, um, and sort of almost putting a, a slightly uh, cheeky or provocative hat on. It's a real sense in which Jesus is doing magic. I mean, not <laughs> to push that too hard. Clearly, he's, um, he's, he's not doing magic via any sort of negative, like, spiritual uh, impulse or power. Mm-hmm. Quite the reverse. But but Jesus's miracles are completely supernatural, right. and I, I think should be things that capture the imaginations of our kids and of ourselves more than anything written by you know, yes. masters like J.K. Rowling or or C.S. Lewis or, or J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. We we actually, in some ways, it's one of the most important reasons why I personally actually believe in Jesus coming. You know, someone who's always loved story is I think the the world that Christianity gives us is a, is a more amazing, beautiful, astonishing, and magical world than mm. the world that Tolkien created uh, in The Lord of the Rings or, or, or that C.S. Lewis created it in Narnia. And that, um, that really excites me. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm glad I asked you about that. That's wonderful. Me and my boys read the the Harry Potter books, and after we read each one, we then they could watch the movie, right? And they do, yeah, they do really that, progress, yeah. so really, really fun. And then we, we switched gears and we started Lord of the Rings after, which, you know, you talk about uh, Rowling's writing. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge 
Tolkien fan, but my boys moving from <laughs> the Harry Potter books to the Lord of the Rings, it was tough for them because Tolkien will describe like a blade of grass for two and a half pages, and it was just a little. That is true. There is some. There are moments where Tolkien could have done with an editor saying, "You know what." Too much on the scenery there. <laughs> but yes. Every time I read it to my boys, I thought the same thing. Somebody needs a little, just to con- do a condensed version, but that takes away some of the artistry. Uh, moving on, I, subs- I subscribed yeah. to a newsletter where you interviewed uh, Christians in academia about their faith in God. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about prep professors at Harvard Law and physics professors at Cambridge and Oxford and a professor of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT. I can barely even say those words, let alone understand what they do. <laughs> And so my my biggest takeaway from that newsletter that you did was, wow, like these are some of the smartest, most brilliant people on the planet, and they believe in Jesus. Like to me, that was just a Mm -hmm. wonderful testimony. So thank you for Mm -hmm. that. Uh, My question to you is, why do you think then that in our day and age, Christianity is often accused of being synonymous with anti-intellectualism? What what would you say to Mm -hmm. that claim? A couple of different things. One, I would take the the, the big sweep of, of history and look at um, how the Bible kind of sets us up in the first place and how the last 2,000 years of Christian history have played out and not just look at the last sort of couple of hundred years of, of Christian history in our specific part of the world. And I'd say Jesus calls us to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Mm. And whereas it is true that the gospel is is simple enough for a child to understand, that doesn't mean that it it lacks intellectual depth, actually. And and if we look at the last 2,000 years, whether whether you're a Christian or not, honestly, if if you look with unbiased eyes at the last 2,000 years, you have to recognize that Christianity is the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. And that, that spans from the extraordinary works of literature that have come to us from Christian authors like Jane Austen. To actually the scientific revolution, which was was driven by Christian thinking, and this is it's one of the great ironies that today people think of science as an alternative hypothesis to belief in a creator God, but actually the first modern scientists are folks who are kind of developing the the empirical method that we now depend on for, for what we call science today. They actually did say because they believed in the God of the Bible, mm-hmm. um, so they, they looked at the Bible and they saw. God in the Bible is not just God of one place, but the God of everywhere. He created all things, and so um, rather than in a you know maybe polytheistic view of the world, you could expect if there are different creators of different parts of the world that they would that part of the world would run according to different rules than another part. No, we believe in one God who's the God of all the, all the universe, and we believe that this God from the Bible is is consistent in character and gives consistent moral laws. And so the, the first modern scientists thought, well, if God gives us consistent moral laws, maybe there's, there are also consistent rational principles on which the universe itself runs, um, that we as, as creatures made in God's image, as, as the book of Genesis tells us, um, might be able to actually figure out. But this is the, the beautiful piece. Because they knew from the Bible as well that God is completely free, and so he could have made the universe any way he chose. He wasn't constrained by anything external to himself. The only way to find out what those laws actually are is to go and look. Hmm. Um, and this is this was first explained to me by a guy called Hans Halverson. He's a professor of philosophy of science at Princeton University, and he's I mean he's probably one of the top four philosophers of science in the world. Incredibly smart guy, um, and a Christian himself. Though in some ways that's kind of irrelevant to to his claim here. And he says not only is it the case that science was originally developed by Christians 
because they believed in the creator God of the Bible. But that actually even today, theism provides us a better foundation philosophically for science than atheism does. He says atheism doesn't actually give you a philosophical foundation for science at all. Mm-hmm. So, so for all the, the ways in which um, Christians have debated about how science relates to the Bible, and, and those debates, to be clear, have been going on since at least the fourth century. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely true that Christians have often argued about how science relates to the Bible. What people miss is that Christians are always on both sides of the questions. So every every sort of historical, um, seemingly science versus Christianity controversy, whether it's you know Galileo or the Big Bang or evolution or whatever it is, you'll actually find very serious Christians arguing on both sides. So, so my point is not to say it's all very straightforward and we can all agree on exactly how the Bible relates to modern science. It's not straightforward. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. And, and serious Christians take, you know, a whole range of different, different views and positions. But my point is to say this, this caricature perpetuated by people like Richard Dawkins and sort of new atheist folks that really science and Christianity are naturally uh, enemies. And one, you know, scientific explanations actually replace theological explanations, I think, completely misrepresents history and misses the point. Hmm. It's hogwash. Is that a good British word, hogwash? Hmm. Not really? Pretty much hogwash, but it's something that, it's hogwash that has been believed both by a lot of Christians and by a lot of atheists. It's one of the odd places where somebody like Richard Dawkins and, you know, many of our brothers and sisters would agree, which is you kind of have to choose between science and Christianity. Yeah. I, I actually think both of those are, are these are wrong. That's right. That's helpful. Your 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 book, Confronting Christianity, was my favorite read of 2019, and since then I've I've given multiple copies of it away, um, and it oh, will okay. it'll it'll be required reading for our ministry interns at my church this coming fall. Just loved it. In it, you address twelve hard questions of Christianity, and all of the most prevalent questions skeptics have or accusation, accusations made against Christianity are included, uh, which I really admire and appreciate. One question you address in the book is, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? And a comment mm-hmm. often made about Christianity, in our part of the world at least, is that it's a white man's religion. But you mm-hmm. write, you write mm-hmm. in your book, in that chapter, you say, Christianity is the most ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, and racially diverse belief system in all of history. Now, that claim, I, yeah. I, I think, surprises a lot of people. Can you unpack it for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I make that claim because it is true. As in, mm-hmm. again, yes. I, you don't have to be a Christian to agree with that. It's just empirically the case. If we look at the global church today, it's both the largest belief system in the world in terms of the number of people who identify as Christians versus any other belief system. And it's the most diverse with a a pretty even spread of people um, living in Europe, North America, South America, Africa, and and a very rapidly growing church in China, which um, experts think that there'll be more Christians in China than in America by 2025. And some leading experts of sociology of religion in China actually think that there'll be majority of Christians in China by 2060, as in more than half hmm. <laughs> folks in China, in China will be identifying as Christians by then. Wow. It's impossible to prove that, but actually if, if anything like present trends continue, that's, mm-hmm. that's where China is, is heading. Hmm. And if we look back at the New Testament, this should not surprise us at all, because actually Jesus broke through every racial and cultural barrier of his day, and then he told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. 
And this this little band of, of Jews started doing that. And then the, the first day that we see, um, you know, the birthday of the church that we see in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church, we see God's Spirit poured out at Pentecost. And then we see um, the apostles preaching to, it says, people from every nation under heaven. And then it mentions places which today in modern day terms would be places like Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Egypt. Um, and that 3,000 from that crowd became followers of Jesus that day. So we see, even from the, the actual birthday of the church, we see a massively racially and culturally diverse group. Mm. Um, I love in, in, in the chapter 8 of Acts when we, we zoom in on the first individual known African believer. He's an Ethiopian man, um, a, a eunuch, who, who Philip is sent by the Spirit to go and yeah. um, preach about Jesus to as he's this guy's riding in his chariot, reading it from the scroll of Isaiah. So clearly or, already somebody who is is wanting to worship the God of the Jews. Um, and Philip explains to him about Jesus. And then this Ethiopian guy sees some water and says, wait a minute, can I be baptized now, please? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we, we see the, the diversity kind of racially, culturally, ethnically of the church from the very beginning. And because of that, we shouldn't be surprised to see it around us today. Um, but, but none of that excuses or should cause us to sort of skip lightly over the ways in which white Western Christians historically have used power uh, over um, folks from other places and with other racial and ethnic backgrounds and, and done so in the name of, of Christianity. I mean, there are, there are um, horrific ways in which that was done. Um, and I think we need to recognize that those things, even when they were done sort of quote in the name of Christianity or by people who identified as Christian, if they'd actually read their Bibles at all carefully, they would have seen that what they were doing was utterly sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think I can understand people today, for example, in America, looking back at the history of slavery in America and how much of you know, the majority of white, white church was complicit in that and, and try to quote, you know, justify that from the Bible. Frankly, the arguments they used were laughable. I mean, literally laughable. Uh, the, the arguments used to classify um, people of African origin as you know sub subhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is uh, so biblically illiterate. It's it's unbelievable, um, and I find it really interesting. I mean, sad. It's like truly sad, but kind of illuminating that the approach that was often taken um, when enslaved Africans in America were wanting to read the Bible will either stop them learning to read, because it's much too dangerous to give them a Bible for them to realize that what's happening to them is profoundly against what the Bible says. Or if we're going to give them a Bible, make sure we edit out all the awkward parts that might make them realize that. And it's, um, you know, there's a, a, a real history of, of giving um, enslaved people edited Bibles because it was much too dangerous to let them see the real thing. And so I think sometimes people say, you know, what we really need for for more justice today, we need less Christianity. I actually think we need more. Hmm. The the injustice of the past was caused by people being insufficiently Christian, not by being too Christian. Amen. That paints a more accurate picture of the Christian movement, and uh, and yet in the West, there's a widely held view that Christianity itself like that's such a great line we need, we need more christianity um but there is this perception out there that christianity itself denigrates women and is homophobic mm. 
you address mm-hmm. both in your book, and I mean, although those are both huge topics, so <laughs> we're going yeah. into the deep end of the pool here, go where you want, but, but what's your response to that when there is this view that Christianity itself denigrates women and is homophobic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, taking the, the first question first, that does Christianity denigrate women? One of the really fascinating things, if you look at the history of the church from, from the very beginning, is that Christianity has always been a majority female movement. No, no offense to, to you and, and other no, right. brothers yeah. or guys listening, listening in, but if you look at it, the historical evidence we have um, for the, the first um, centuries of the church, it seems that the, the Greco-Roman world was as much as two-thirds male at that time due to a combination of women dying in childbirth and actually selective infanticide of baby girls. So you know, at that time, women were not seen as equal to men morally in any way. And so if you had a baby girl, you might well leave her out to die and might hope you had better luck next, next time. So um, historians think that, that the Greco-Roman Empire could have, could have been as much as two-thirds male. And the records we have about the early church actually point the opposite direction, that it's mm-hmm. as much as two-thirds female. Um, and and that, that pattern has persisted through history to where, even today, as I mentioned, the church in China is growing incredibly fast. But it is a vastly majority female movement. Yep. Uh, again, despite being in, in a culture where there are more men than women because of selective abortion of little girls um, after the one-child policy. Mm-hmm. In China, so we, as we come to this question, does the Bible denigrate women? We sort of have to recognise. Well, it sure seems to have attracted an awful lot of women over time, given that it's supposedly something that is, you know, intrinsically anti-women. And then we need to look at well, why do we think that women are equal to men? And it's one of those questions where, for us today in the 21st century West, it can feel like well, it's just basic moral common sense. Everybody knows that. And clearly, it's immoral to think anything else. But what we don't realize is that the reason we think that is because of Christianity. Yes. Again, I mean, the Greco-Roman world, people didn't think that women were equal to men. That has not been the norm, the norm in most cultures and in most of time. Um, men have been physically stronger than women and less vulnerable. And, you know, because they're not um, having a lot of babies, actually, like in, in many ways, just naturally more powerful than, than women in brute terms. And... Um, humans are known for using their power exploitatively. And so we, it's not true that it is a self-evident truth that men and women are created equal. It's actually a specifically Christian belief. Um, and if, if you read the Gospels and see how Jesus related to women, it's completely shocking to people of his day. And it actually changed how women were seen from then on. Now, again, I, I don't want to say that it changed, like, overnight, suddenly, everyone who's ever identified as a Christian has treated women like Jesus did. That's not true. I wish it was true. And um, there's definitely a history of, of, of sinful misogyny and, and um, oppression of, mm. of women that's been done by Christians. Mm. But if we look at, actually, you know, if we come back to the scriptures, we'll see that they didn't get it from, from Jesus. And in fact, what they did get from Jesus at their best was the, the recognition that both men and women are, are made in the image of God, as Genesis puts it, um, you know, in the image of God created in male and female and created them. It's very specifically highlighted that both men and women are equally made in the image of God. So then, I mean, that this kind of actually segues us um, usefully into the question about homophobia, because 
whereas the Bible does teach very clearly that men and women are equally morally valuable, it also teaches that they have been intentionally created as men and as women and that they're not kind of interchangeable. Um, and I think one of the the ways in which our, our um, the broader culture today is, is at odds with, with what the Bible teaches is that we have been taught that men and women are, are not only equal, but actually in every sense interchangeable. And the Bible gives us a different vision because if, if you think about it, um, the, the God of the Bible is presented as the one who created all things from the beginning out of nothing. Hmm. So he could have created human beings so that we were just like one type that just, I don't know, reproduced every 20 years or so without, you know, asexually, like, like, you know, plenty of mm-hmm. smaller creatures do. Um, or he could have just magically, miraculously created another generation of humans every 20 or 30 years. Uh, instead, he made us so that we could only create new humans by the coming together across the difference of male and female. And if, if you read the, the big picture of the Bible from beginning to end, you'll notice that the reason for this is because he was wanting to tell us a story of Jesus' love for his church. And it's one of these areas where if people today think that Christian sexual ethics is really weird. And and I, I understand that. But I, I think it's actually weirder than they realize. <laughs> because <laughs> we're not just saying... Um, According to, to the, the Bible, sex only belongs in, in marriage um, between a man and a woman. We're actually saying the, the point of male and female in the first place, the point of sex, the point of marriage, the point of any kind of romantic impulse is actually to give us a picture of Jesus' love for us. Yes. Um, people are often more familiar with the, the metaphor of God as our Father, which we see clearly in the scriptures as well. And that tells us that in the absolutely best human father, we get a tiny glimpse of God's fatherly love towards us. Mm. Likewise, in in the best possible human husband, we get a little picture of Jesus' love for us. Uh, And Jesus himself said that he was the bridegroom, um, tapping into this this long Old Testament tradition of of God being pictured as a loving, faithful husband, and Israel, his people, as an often unfaithful wife, you know, always cheating on him with other supposed gods. Jesus comes and says he's the bridegroom, and then, then Paul explains that, that human marriage is, is designed to be a little scale model of Jesus' love for his church. So mm-hmm. he says, um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that, that picture is, is the, the gospel reason, actually, for Christian sexual ethics. So it's easy to think, well, you know, the, the Bible arbitrarily says that sex only belongs in this one context and that it has to be male, female. Um, you know, surely that's just because people in the first century didn't understand that there could be real, not only attraction, but also love and mutual commitment between people of the same sex. Actually, no, people did understand that. There was a, a lot of um, same-sex sexuality, uh, much of which was, was culturally embraced uh, at the time the New Testament was being written. And so it was, it was countercultural then as much as it is now, albeit in slightly, in slightly different ways. Um, you know, Roman men were not expected to be faithful to their wives, uh, it was fine for them to sleep with other women. It was actually also fine for them to sleep with other men. Um, and so we don't read the Bible um, as a, a text that is sort of totally um, unaware mm-hmm. of the, the possibility of, of um, sexual intimacy between people of the same sex. Um, 
but we do we do read it as something that's very specific about where sex does and doesn't belong. Um, and this is something which I mean, I for those who've read my book will know this, and others may not. If I were not a Christian, I would very likely be married to a woman today rather than to a man. I always, as long as I can remember since childhood, um, been attracted to women, mm. um, and it, I have come to the Bible not kind of hoping that it would tell me that it's not okay to marry another woman. I actually would have been quite happy to find that it said the opposite when I was sort of first properly exploring this for, for myself. Hmm. Um, but the more that I have understood of what the Bible says, the more I've realized that it, it's not that the Bible says no to same-sex relationships, as people sometimes say. People say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. I actually think the Bible just gives us a very different vision for same-sex relationships. Um, if, we, if you read what Paul says, he, he calls um, us brothers and sisters. He, he says that we're like one body together in the church. He he calls his friend Anisimus his very heart, this individual Christian um, who'd escaped slavery. Um, a really interesting. I mean, I don't know, Matt, if you've ever said that to a like male Christian friend of yours, you are my very heart. And my guess is they'd feel a bit awkward because it's like super intense. I haven't used it um, yet. I'm going to try. I'm going to do that soon. You haven't tried that, or, or try what Paul says that he was among the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother with her That's children. Right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Also, really like awkwardly intimate. Yeah. Um, and I think the Bible gives us a beautiful vision of same-sex love. I mean, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this that he laid on his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. But it is not a sexual vision. Actually, quite, like, quite clearly not. Um, and I had a conversation just a couple of months ago with a, a woman who had um, come to Christ when she was in um, a long-term relationship with another woman. They'd had a, a child together. Um, and, and actually, both of them now have become followers of Jesus Um when this happened, they, they very much recognized that they needed to be ready to end their relationship in every sense. Um, but as they as they prayed and kind of processed this, um, what they actually felt called to do was to move in with um, the woman I was talking to, her, her son-in-law's a pastor and his wife and, and their kids, and sort of form a new, much larger family where they, instead of having a romantic relationship, they are related as sisters. Wow. And I was so moved when this woman said to me that actually she feels closer to her former partner as sisters in Christ than she ever did when they were lovers. Wow. That they have actually a, a stronger basis for, for true intimacy, even though now they're saying, actually, this is not a sexual or romantic relationship at all. It's of a, a very different nature. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you for delving into that and, and sharing a little bit of your story as well. I found that so helpful in the book and uh, and really compelling because it's it's your story to tell. It, it it's uh it's it's very helpful. Uh, your forthcoming book, Ten Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About, comes out in March. I'm excited for this. I have <clears throat> I have an 11 year old son, and so I'm looking forward to um, using this as a resource to to have uh, conversations with him and check it out together. Um, first, why this book? And second, uh, what are a couple of the questions every teen should ask and answer that you are most passionate, most excited about? Hmm. Why this book? Well, I, I also have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 2.5-year-old. And, and it, 
my sense, I mean, kids develop at very different ages, any parent <laughs> will know. And so there's no kind of hard and fast rule in my mind for this is the age at which a child should read A or B. Hmm. But Confronted Christianity is deliberately written for a, quite a, an adult reader and um, you know, both in terms of the sophistication of the, the writing, but actually also in terms of, of the, the subject matter. There are some truly traumatic things that I write about there because I think they need to be written about. Um, but I don't think that every... You know, ten-year-old needs to um, to grapple with quite all of the, the traumatic things that, that I write about there. Um, and it, but it seemed to me that that actually we really need to have resources for um, people who aren't ready to read totally adult books. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for some, your your eleven-year-old and my daughter will be eleven by the time, or very nearly eleven by the time the book comes out, and she she'll be very ready to read it. And um, there'll be others who, you know, maybe uh, 13, 14, 15, um, even 16, who aren't actually, for whom this would be a better resource than confronting Christianity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's shorter, it's more accessible. There's lots of Disney, lots of Harry Potter, <laughs> like even more Harry Potter than grown up version. Um, and in terms of what, what questions I'm most passionate about, it covers much of the same terrain as confronting Christianity. Mm. The, the area that's more fleshed out is actually around um, questions around transgender um, concerns and issues. Because even in the last couple of years since I, I wrote Confronted Christianity, those conversations have moved really fast. Um, and so there's a question, uh, one of the t- chapters is titled, Who Cares If You're a Boy or a Girl? Um, well, I, I try to, to give a, a Christian, um, a set of sort of, Christian understandings of, of what it means to be male or female um, and how this how this relates to conversations that folks will be having with friends. You know, in school, I mean, even a couple of weeks ago, my 10-year-old my um, ended up in a, a really tricky conversation with a friend because um, they writing a book together and her friend wanted to put a transgender character in the book. And my, my daughter was, well, I don't know how I feel about that. Her friend ended up saying she didn't want to be friends with her anymore. Hmm. Fortunately, they they managed to resolve it really well. But I, I think these questions, um, you know, questions around gender and sexuality, uh, questions around race, questions around justice, science, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all of these things are ones that um, kids are going to be engaging with at school or with friends um, well before they're necessarily ready to read a, an adult book like Running Christianity. So yeah, I tried to write something that would be helpful to them. Um, and actually, I have another book coming out in April, funnily, funnily enough. Um, and I'm curious, I know you guys are based in Canada. Are there popular yard signs there that say things like, um, in this house we believe that Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a, is that a thing in Canada? Uh, yeah, it's spilled over. Yeah, it's... Uh it's not as prevalent probably as in the States, but you can find it. There were some BLM marches and um, some of those, some of those statements. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I've got a book coming out in April that's specifically working through those yard signs and, and trying to help people oh, wow. sort between things that Christians like can and must affirm 
and things that they can't and mustn't and and why like how these are how these are diff- very different ideas that actually got tangled up together so mm-hmm. um i'm hoping that that'll be useful that's useful great for folks as well um if you don't mind can i just prod that you, you uh you set it up so well that that you know the challenge like gen z some of the stats coming out about gen z and just the world they've grown up in and and the cultural mm-hmm. norms that surround them i mean the challenge and this is why your writing is is so helpful is you take something that looks like Christianity is hateful and you and you mm-hmm. dissect it and then you actually show why it's beautiful that that is kind of hard to see for many when it comes to transgenderism mm-hmm. because there's um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it, it can it, to land somewhere or saying something's wrong is to to appear unloving, um, even mm-hmm. hateful. And so, what 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 is the message in that section of the book um, where you're uh, talking about uh, transgenderism and talking about uh, Christian view? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, forgive me because I'm going to <clears throat> I'm going to start with Harry Potter again. <laughs> in, Wonderful, in a slightly different way. So, I I don't know if, if folks have followed this at all, but J.K. Rowling uh, about a year ago mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tweeted in support of a, a British tax specialist um, who had t- herself. This woman had tweeted um, questioning a, a, a set of new laws that were coming in in the UK that would essentially um, mean that there there could be no spaces reserved for only for biological women. So whether it was a a women-only prison or a women-only refuge for abused women or whether it was women-only sports teams or, you know, biological women um, versus folks who identified as as women. And um, J.K. Rowling tweeted in um, support of this woman uh, and received a huge amount of, of backlash Mm-hmm. including, interestingly, from um, Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter, and um, the, the, the folks who played both Hermione and, and Ron. And um, when Daniel Radcliffe wrote about his disagreement with J.K. Rowling, he said, he made the, the increasingly common claim that transgender women are women. Like, full stop, period, no right. uh, no ifs or buts. Actually, somebody who, um, who may have been born with a biologically male body, um, but now identifies as a woman, is a woman in every way. Like, there should be no separation in our minds between that person and somebody like me who was born biologically a woman. Now, the problem is, when you when you actually look at that statement and dig into it more carefully, you realize that it leaves us having no stable definition of what a woman is at all. Because it, up until this point, if I were to say I'm a woman, you may infer all sorts of kind of culturally informed things about me, but at, at the heart of that statement is a claim to being biologically female. But if we say that transgender women are women, then we're actually taking the biology completely out of the equation, and all we are left with is stereotypes. Hmm. And, and this actually becomes extremely problematic when it comes to uh, how women are treated, for, for one thing. Um, and there's there's been a lot of... Uh, conflict and conversation, even interestingly, not only um, sort of traditional feminists who are saying, well, wait a minute, this this whole new way of thinking and set of language is actually quite undermining to what we've been trying to do for decades. But also, actually, many um, gay and lesbian leaders who are saying, 
wait a minute, we've been saying for a long time that, that we, we're, we're same-sex attracted. We're attracted to people of our own biological sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we find it problematic that we're now being accused of being transphobic by saying that. Um, and, and we find it problematic that a lot of kids are being asked to uh, find and discover and um, even sort of medically and surgically embrace their, their gender identity at an early age when it may not be actually something that's good for them in the long run. So there's a, been a, a recent um, massive surge actually in, in young girls uh, identifying as transgender and taking hormone-blocking drugs, um, even having mastectomies, um, and sort of doing things which will change their bodies permanently and make them infertile in adulthood. And there's this real, really big questions around whether um, whether 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds should be allowed to do that, actually, to allowed to make decisions that will impact the rest of our lives ir- irrevocably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, whereas uh, uh, to some extent, um, you know, gay marriage um, is quite easy for, for most um, secular liberal folk to to. Uh, to embrace, there's no you know, outside the Bible. It didn't seem to be a whole lot of reason that this was problematic. Actually, the the current wave of the transgender movement is is causing all sorts of difficulties um, with folks who, who very much would identify as like secular liberal. Um, you know, not having a religious motivation for for any of the things that they're saying. So I think there's just a lot of real complexity there that it's important for us to, to recognize. Um, and then what I do in the kids' book is, is, is I, I talk about uh, The Lord of the Rings, and my, my favorite scene in The Lord of the Rings, which, forgive spoilers for anyone who hasn't yet <laughs> fallen in love with Tolkien, but when um, Eowyn, who is this incredible woman who, um, because she is a woman, is, is left behind when the men go off to, to fight this great battle against um Sauron's uh, armies. She dresses up as a as a man, like she puts armor on and rides into battle, pretending to be a man. And then she ends up um, confronting the Witch King of Angmar, who's the evil Sauron's uh, most important general. Essentially, um, all the men have kind of run away screaming, and there she is trying to protect the king, who's her uncle, who she loves. And the witch king laughs at her and says, um, thou fool, no living man may hinder me. And she says, I am no man, and takes her helmet off and, and kills him. And, and I, I love that moment for so many reasons. Hmm. But one of the reasons is Tolkien's storytelling, you know, she, she basically really wasn't comfortable as, as a woman, Eowyn, um, she was quite resentful of the fact that she was left behind um, on the basis of being female when, when the guys went off to fight. But in the end, it was only because she was a woman that she was able to play the part that the author had given her. Hmm. And I think as, as we look at our lives as Christians, for some of us, it'll actually be really hard uh, to inhabit the bodies that God has given us. Uh, but there'll, be, there'll be some, maybe even some listening today who have always felt deeply alienated from their biological sex. They, they haven't felt like they fitted in as a man or they haven't felt like they fitted in as a woman. And this has been really hard for them. Mm. And, and I want to say 
that that may well be very true for you, but actually, if if God is the author of our story, then we can trust Him, yeah. even in the hard places, almost especially in the hard places, that He is working out our story for for good, and and that He will use us as He made us um, to do beautiful things for Him. Wow. Thank you for you are such a rich resource to the church. I I really hope that you know that, <laughs> uh, Doctor McLaughlin. Oh, thank, thank you for being so smart and being able to hang in Cambridge and Harvard circles with vibrant faith. Thank you for writing with such clarity around timely questions for the church. And thank you for fulfilling your Commonwealth duty and speaking with a Canadian and uh, many, <laughs> many Canadian listeners today. The Crown, the Crown thanks you. Oh, I love the Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for so many, so many things, including tea. All right. Thanks, Matt. Take care. <laughs> like I said in the episode, I can't recommend her book to you enough. And I anticipate her 10 questions book for teens to be an incredible resource in my house and yours in the near future. Thanks for joining Rebecca and me for this installment of the Harry Potter Appreciation Podcast. <laughs> uh, your engagement with this podcast is what it's all about. I hope you love it and that it serves you well. You can help get deep thoughts out there by sending specific episodes to people in your life that you think will be helped by them. Plus, giving it an honest five-star review and commenting about how wonderful and deep it is will help it get traction as well. Next week, I will be sharing a deep thought on three problems the human race can't solve. And if you thought this episode with Rebecca touched on some contentious topics, just wait till our next full-length episode with Thaddeus Williams on confronting injustice without compromising truth, where we talk about racism, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and more in an important episode on social justice and a biblical vision for it. Talk to you then. Thank you.